Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 30 of Unknown Orbits. The Nurse Come from the Woodwork Out by Reginald Bretnor. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. This week, we're doing humor and science fiction, starting out with a classic humorous piece the NURS, that's G-N-U-R-R-S, the NURS, come from the woodwork out. And the reason I'm using a funny accent is because this is a Papa Schimmelhorn story. And we will explain what that is in a minute, but let me just give you the story synopsis. Papa Schimmelhorn, the amateur inventor, invents a fife. I'm sure I didn't pronounce that correctly, which he claims will win the war against Barovia in two days. Apparently, the United States was at war with the fictional country of Barovia. I think that's a Three Stooges country. Probably. When they were doing the Führer of Barovia satire. The uh, weapon in question is a bassoon equipped with a crystal that draws hordes of nerves from yesterday as in yesterday, the day, to swarm and devour clothing, equipment, and furnishings whenever he plays a special tune. The fact that the nerves come from yesterday, their job is to eat yesterday, which is kind of like that Stephen King. Yes, just like the Stephen King story. Now, when he plays the song backwards, the nerves return back to the woodwork immediately. So he manages to unleash the nerves on the enemy through a specially coded broadcast that you have to uncode it in order to hear the tune. They did that because if it would have gone out over a broadcast, then anybody listening to it would have had nerves all over them. We didn't want that. So the intelligence services of Barovia decode the message, and then they're attacked by nerves, and the war is over in a matter of days. Unfortunately, due to an error on the part of some intelligence operatives in the United States, they decode the song, and there's a major NERS outbreak in Los Angeles. Papa Schimmelhorn is ready for this. He has a solution to the problem, which is that apparently NERS don't like the way that horses smell. Yes, I said that. They don't like the way that horses smell. So they round up every horse in the United States, like thousands of horses, and they have a gigantic cavalry assault on the Noors, which is successful and which drives them away. And so at the end, Papa Schimmelhorn is triumphant, but is thwarted at the end by Mrs. Schimmelhorn, who shows up and hauls him away because she finds out he's been flirting with a cute female sergeant. So clearly, this is a very broad farce of a story. I liked it. Yeah, I like it too. May I say a little bit more to the Papa Schimmelhorn yes, character? because it was a series of stories by the author uh, that were published in Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine in the 1950s. 
His character was a Swiss clockmaker who was described as a conscious moron, but a subconscious genius. And in all these stories, he had these crazy inventions. And by the end of it, Mama Schimmelhorn would show up, break whatever the device was, and hit him over the head with her umbrella and drag him home again. Yes. So this is well within the formula for the Papa Schimmelhorn stories. So the author, Mr. Retnor, was born in Siberia. He wrote a lot of different kinds of fiction and nonfiction. Turned out to be an important contributor at one point to science fiction criticism, publishing a couple of books of science fiction criticism that were considered very influential. And is best known in terms of his fiction for the Papa Schimmelhorn series. And wasn't there another series that he did as well that was a humorous series? Yes, those were the Ferdinand Feghut series. They were one paragraph. They weren't much more than a pun, usually. Mm. Just imagine making a pun elaborate enough to be a one or two paragraph story, and that's what they were. I think the impact of Papa Schimmelhorn and Ferdinand Feghut was large because up until that point, there wasn't a lot of humor in science fiction. What little I have read about the fandom's reaction to these two humor series, they went wild for them because they were new and different. So was it the case that starting in the early 1950s when magazines like Galaxy and Fantasy and Science Fiction came along, that they were opening their pages to different kinds of stories and that humor was one of the things that distinguished them, let's say, from astounding. Oh, absolutely. Fantasy and science fiction and galaxy, and a few others, they were coming along with less serious, lighter fiction to begin with. And, and that creates an environment in which a little humor is welcome. From what you're saying, it sounds to me like, because this was published in winter of 1950, so that's fairly early. Like second or third issue. Yeah, it's within the first few issues of fantasy and science fiction. So I'm thinking that you probably had a positive fan reaction that was significant enough where the editors began saying, okay, well, maybe we should actively solicit more humor. And for fantasy and science fiction, Anthony Bauscher was the editor at this time. And I know he himself wrote some fiction which had a humorous tinge to it. So I could certainly see where he was receptive to the idea of publishing humor in fantasy and science fiction. So I think we agree that the story is kind of funny in a very broad, farcical sort of a way. And they were collected, and then there was one or two novels after that as well. Okay. So our side topic today then is humor in science fiction, and this is your bailiwick. So I'm going to turn things over to you to kind of take us through and do a little bit of a survey of humor in science fiction in the Golden Age. Okay, well, first of all, I think we should define humor a little bit. In my mind, there's almost like a ladder of humor that starts out with silliness at the bottom. Dad jokes. Yeah, puns. Well, puns are actually, if you have the ladder, say, leaning against a wall, puns are in a hole that you have dug below the ladder. <laughs> By the way, I don't like dad jokes. I don't like puns. I don't like dad jokes. Sorry. It's like nails on the chalkboard to me. I like some dad jokes. And then as you go higher on the ladder, each layer, I don't want to say is better. Each layer has more complexity, has maybe deeper meanings, is not as populous until you get to the level of satire, which some people wouldn't even consider serious social satire to be humor. 
because it's absolutely serious. I still consider it humor because that's the path you're taking. That, that would be something like Gulliver's Travels. Yes, which a lot of people don't realize was satire. At its time, for sure. Yeah. It was going after class structure in the 18th century. Silly, in my mind, would be like the movie Airplane, or there was a parody book on Star Trek called Star Wreck in the Perkinning. And just the title alone tells you what level of humor it is. Mm-hmm. And I remember one particular, this is one of the few, I think in my lifetime, there have been two books that I did not somehow pass on, sell, give away, donate to a library. And I'm pretty sure this was one of them where it just angered me so much. It was so annoyingly not funny. It was on the level. Okay. In my notes, I have shouting at clouds. <laughs> Some of that's going to happen. It's on the level of a toddler going into absolute hysterics because someone put a hat on the dog. Yes. Isn't parody an opposition to satire? Parody is just what Mad Magazine was famous for doing, taking the different aspects of something and exaggerating it to the point of ridiculousness. Yes. And the difference between parody and satire is sometimes hard to pin down. My view is that satire is you're illuminating something for a reason. You're showing something, while parody is just kind of silly. Well, I would say that a lot of parody is pretty superficial. Yes. Because, like I said, you're focusing on the various elements of a movie or a book or a TV show, and some of it's very obvious. You're just exaggerating those elements to the point of ridiculousness, and that was pretty much Mad Magazine's formula for forever. And that can be very funny, but it's also not exactly deep. Right. You're not getting to the heart of something to point out what's ridiculous or absurd about something. To be a little bit fair, some parody is better than other parody. Yes. And though we've passed that point, I still have to let this go by telling you the scene in Star Wreck the Perkinning that made me hate the person was when Jordy comes to the command deck and he says something funny and the captain says something funny. And then with no relation whatsoever to what anyone said or done, the book describes Jordy tap dancing away. That's stupid. Yes, absolutely stupid. And it enraged me that I had spent money on this. Yeah, that, that, that level of banal and inane humor, I hate that too. And you know why it was successful? Firstest with the mostest. Star Trek The Next Generation came out, and this book came out like a month later. Mm. It was like immediate. And because it is well known, because of its notoriety as the first thing, a few years ago, some fans made a film oh, God. of it. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. So there are a lot of levels of humor in between the, these two extremes. Okay. I do not have a comprehensive list because there's too much. There's tons of humor, science fiction out there. Plus, there's the question of how much humor you're putting into a story. Okay. You could have a single joke at the end, or you could have 50 sprinkled throughout. There's no way that you could come up with a comprehensive list. We were just talking about Mel Brooks the other day. History of the World Part Two is going to be coming out. And I made the point that Mel Brooks' humor was... Hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss. That they would have one good funny joke and then the next joke would be a groaner. But because jokes were coming every 30 seconds, you didn't have time to dwell on the bad jokes because maybe a good joke would come along very quickly in its wake. Which is kind of what Airplane did. Yeah. Personally, looking back at Airplane, 
now, it doesn't hold up quite as well because to me, some of the jokes are broad misses. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, that's definitely true of Mel Brooks, but I think it's probably true of some of these other writers in science fiction as well, that if you're going to put in a lot of jokes, you'd have to be really good to put in 50 jokes and have all 50 jokes land. Yeah. You saw an episode of that horrible TV show he did in the 70s. I have a very vague memory of it, and my memory was it was not terribly good. I remember seeing an episode and not a single joke landed. Trust me, audience, it's not worth looking up. <laughs> it's, it was not. It was terribly unfunny. And I was a Mel Brooks fan at the time, and it was terribly unfunny. It had a lot of third-rate comic TV actors in it, and it was unfunny to the extreme. So even a person like Mel Brooks can strike out. Yeah, that's true of a lot of people. But getting back to science fiction. Yes, I have a number of examples roughly arranged going up that ladder. Okay, let's climb the ladder. So the first one is Rub-A-Dub by Frank Richards. It was in the June 1953 imagination. It's two pages long. Very silly, quick little story with no real plot about the Navy discovering this weird iceberg as they get closer, they discover it's a giant bar of soap. <laughs> okay. And then a submarine finds a plug in the bottom of the ocean. Oh, dear. No plot. It ends with, well, gee, that was Tuesday and Thursday. Now it's Friday, and we're all scared what's going to happen on Saturday bath night. And they don't reveal what happens on Saturday bath night. They right. leave it to your imagination. Right. And I am convinced that they had two empty pages like a couple ads dropped out or something, they had to fill it. And if you look at the art for it and imagine having to pull some generic art for the story, I swear you can see that it was some sailors standing at the shore and someone added in a giant bar of soap in the distance. <laughs> so it's a minimal representation of the story. Yes. So I'm convinced they, it was they, a They had a clip art cabinet, and they had to run to the clip art cabinet to find something quick. Exactly. But credit to Frank Richards, I was not disappointed having read that story. It was okay. Oh, well executed. Yeah. For what it was. Walter Tevis had The Big Bounce, which you could almost classify as a story with a perfect artifact in the consequences of that, like a can of paint was one. A. Van Vogt. Yeah. Or John Thomas's Cube. The Big Bounce is about a scientist who invents the perfect rubber. Because when it bounces, it doesn't lose energy. It gains energy by taking the heat energy around it and transforming it into kinetic energy. The story is, of course, they have this thing, they're fooling around with it, they don't see the implications, and someone bounces it outside. And the next bounce is higher and higher and higher until this thing is bouncing like half a mile up and hitting with the force of a plane crashing, and they're chasing after it. The kinetic energy that you would get from the rods from heaven, the proposed weapon system where you would drop tungsten rods from high orbit, and by the time they hit the Earth, they would be traveling with such kinetic energy, it would be like dropping an atomic bomb on someone. Yeah. So this thing has developed massive kinetic energy. The higher it goes, the farther down it has to drop. Yeah, and it's destroying the freeway and creating big holes, and they're chasing you can't after stop it. it. It's a rubber ball, right. and it's bouncing, and how do you stop it? And the ending... Spoiler warning. 
what happens is they don't fix it. The ball is converting so much heat energy into kinetic energy that it ends up freezing itself. And when it hits the ground the final time, it shatters. And so this highly dangerous stuff is coated across the bottom of a giant hole, and they have to quick fill it up with dirt before the little pieces start bouncing. Oh, okay. Ralph Raphael, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, that is a little more serious story called Make Mine Homogenized. It is kind of a basic story. Oh, I'm seeing that this is published in Astounding Magazine. Yes. In 1960. So maybe Mr. Campbell felt a little competitive pressure to start including humor in his magazine. Quite late. Well, to be fair, I'm sure there were some humorous stories in Astounding Magazine over the years. They weren't known for it, but it is interesting that it does show up in 1960. So in that story, a cow on a farm that's been irradiated by atomic bomb experiments starts giving the strange sour milk that they discover makes a great rocket fuel. Cow's milk is rocket fuel. Yes. When... How do they find out it's rocket fuel? It's rocket fuel when it's catalyzed by the yolks from the chicken that was irradiated. So somebody's making an omelet and they blew their kitchen up or something? Or how did that work? Driving the truck to the county fair Uh, and the milk spills and cracks an egg. Oh, okay. The government gets involved and they find new uses for these things. And they discover that they can also use the milk to create the perfect artificial material. They don't use the word plastic, but it's basically plastic that is super strong, can withstand unbelievable temperatures. It's just perfect for making a rocket. Well, you got to come up with a punchline to a story like that and what it is. And again, I'm just going to give away just about every, every one of these stories. It has a time limit. Like after 21 days, this amazing new material just collapses into a pile of goo. Okay. So they have this rocket ready to go. It goes up a little bit and then it blows up. And then they notice, oh, everything we made after that point is turning into goo when it's 21 days old. I'm sure the story had a little extra twist at the end. I don't remember it. That is a thing about writing short stories that I've never heard anyone discuss. You have an ending to your science fiction story, right? But you also want a kind of a secondary nod or point at the very end, like the last sentence. Yes. So like in this story, if I had to make one up, the very last point could be someone saying, well, after all that, I'm not telling them what happened to the pig. Not quite an ending, but just a note, just a last note. Right. That's a good point. Next up is Snowball Effect by Catherine McLean, which I'm pretty sure is more famous than the others. In it, a sociologist at a college is about to have his funding cut, and the dean says, well, we need something to show the donors that sociology can have a tangible effect. So he says, okay, we're going to pick out a tiny little organization, the Watasha Sewing Circle. We're going to pick out a pushy person who wants power to be their leader, and then we're going to give them new bylaws, which sociologically have every possible growth factor in them and no limiting factors. They do this. Then they discover that it's growing far beyond their expectations to the point where it's changing its name into different organizations and it starts becoming a national political effort and the dean calls the sociologist up and says okay you got your budget this is great so when does this end 
And the sociologist says, well, no, we, we didn't put any limiting factors at all. And because it's changed its purpose from sewing to a political movement, it's going to grow until every single person on earth is a member of it. So that's the ending of the story. And the last note is that the dean moves to a cabin in the middle of nowhere to avoid this organization. Okay. All right. That sounds good. C.C. McCap and All the Earth a Grave. Now we're getting more into satire. That doesn't sound like a very funny title. Very simple story. It's one of those stories with a very simple concept, and it's all in the writing after that. There is a mistake in a computer somewhere, and a company that makes coffins is accidentally given like 10 or 100 times its advertising budget. So the story is kind of a satire on the effect that advertising has. They do this huge marketing campaign to sell coffins to anyone they possibly can. And now that everyone in the world who can buy a coffin has a coffin, there's this pressure to start using them. And by the end of the story, everyone on earth is dead. And like the last living person is looking around for a nice coffin to lie down in and die. Okay. <laughs> Again, that doesn't sound very funny. But it's all because but, okay, of advertising. Satire, but satire doesn't necessarily have to be funny. That's true. And it's all about advertising and its effect on people. Mm-hmm. Frederick Brown, as we have just talked about him uh, in another episode. Yes. Or are we going to? Frederick Brown, we're going to be talking about him and one of his stories in our next episode. Yes, and this one, not a terribly memorable story. It's called Nothing Serious, because... Serious. This is exactly like Beetlejuice. No, I don't think it is. I think Serious is pronounced Serious. And that would be S-I-R-I-U-S. The star Sirius, which I think is called the dog star, is it not? Yes. So Sirius, so it is pronounced Sirius. I'm pretty sure of that. I thought it wasn't Sirius because it fits this story That's too well. That's what I'm saying. This make this title makes sense. Nothing Sirius. Yes. Now, the reason it's nothing Sirius is because we have settled in the solar system of Sirius, and we have numbered the planets someone discovers a planet closer to the sun than Sirius 1. So it has to be nothing serious. Ah, okay. So this planet, nothing, was discovered by a family traveling business on a spaceship, and they land on the thing, and they see all sorts of wacky, silly things. It ends up basically being the plot of shore leave from Star Trek. Oh, okay, where they land on a bucolic planet where they're all supposed to be getting shore leave and weird things start to happen for instance sulu gets chased by a samurai somebody else is afraid of tigers they get attacked by a tiger one of kirk's old academy nemesis shows up and is taunting him and trying to fight him and it's all manufactured by the aliens that run the pleasure planet Yes. mistakenly thinking this would be stimulating and fun for them. Because they're reading their minds. Right, because they're reading their minds. And that's exactly what happens here. The only other thing to say about it is that it was published in the spring 1944 edition of Captain Future, which I didn't even know existed. Well, I'm familiar with Captain Future because that was a creation of Edmund Hamilton. He created the character and wrote it for many years. It was a very popular science fiction pulp magazine. 
I didn't realize that Captain Future magazine published stuff other than Captain Future stories, so that's interesting. And the author of Nothing Serious, Frederick Brown, loved his puns. Another hero was called Paradox Lost. Yeah, Frederick Brown was known for his humor. He was one of those writers that wrote quite a few. And I think we're going to talk about him a little more in our next episode. But he was definitely one of the writers of that golden age that was known for his humor. I may be seeming to do a little gatekeeping here. I have been involved with humor for many, many years, and I've written quite a lot of it. I will say that these are my opinions, and when I said there was the ladder of humor, I didn't say any was particularly better than any else, with the exception of puns. So (laughs) silly, yeah, silly is okay. It's it's usually not to my taste, but I'm not saying there's anything bad with it. For a nice sampling of different humorous science fiction stories, I did find an anthology called Science Fiction Carnival, which was edited by Frederick Brown and Mac Reynolds, and I'm pretty sure there's a Frederick Brown story in it. That will make sense. It's exactly what I would do. So yeah, I like your idea of a ladder of humor. It does denote a ascending or descending level of quality, and I get what you're saying by saying, no, that's not necessarily the case, but just my personal view. I do believe that satire is the highest form of humor because satire is, if it's done right, it's always about something, something important or something meaningful or something significant. And you're using the vehicle of humor and exaggeration to make a bigger point. Whereas... Parody can just be a rhetorical device, a humor device that's used to make people laugh, which is fine. You know, one thing about humor is it's like pornography and roller coasters. Either if you do it right, it works. And if you don't do it right, it's a complete and utter failure. If you're not making people laugh, then, you know, you failed. Yes. So it's it's a very precise art and it's very easy to judge whether you've succeeded or not. One slightly judgmental observation of mine is that if you follow a funny person through their career, a lot of them evolve, and they always evolve along the same path up that ladder. They don't fall down. Many will find their level and stay there forever. Gallagher is on the first step. Above puns, though. Yes. Smashing watermelons is the first rung above puns. Yes. (laughs) But you see especially in England, where it has a different atmosphere for humor. It's really interesting seeing someone like David Mitchell now because you can tell when he has full control of the thing he's doing, it's much higher up the ladder than what people expect. When he's on a panel show, he kind of drops back down well, to what people jokey, expect. Well, then joke, 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 yes. joke. Yeah. And humor, to be clear, and I know this because I've followed your writing for a very long time, writing humor is just like any other form of writing. The more you do it, the better you get at it, the more sophisticated you become at your craft. So I think that's why a lot of good comedians improve and get much better over the years because they're becoming better writers as they go. Just like a novelist, you know, you can look at, just to pull somebody out of thin air, Stephen King. I'm not a big fan of Carrie or The Shining. I read both of them and they're okay, They were made into much better movies than they were books. They're decent, but they're nowhere near as good as his later stuff, which is brilliant. And you could probably point out 10 other writers 
that followed a similar path. And to bring this around to science fiction, one point I wanted to make is that science fiction usually is a fiction of ideas. So you've got people either taking an interesting technical scientific question and playing with it, which is a lot of these problem-solving stories that we've talked about in the past, or taking a bigger issue that might be more of a social question and exploring that. To me, the fusion of the idea grappling of science fiction with the tool of humor, satire in particular, that could be very powerful, I think, the combination of those two things. But again, just like you have in any other form of humor, you've got fairly simple, jokey sort of stuff like Alamagusa, which we've talked about in a previous episode, yeah, or this story, the Papa Schimmelhorn stories, which are just jokes. They're broad farce, they're laughs, and there's not much more to it than that, which is fine because, as we agree, making people laugh is a good thing. But they're missing out what the better writers do is to blend the idea of idea grappling with science fiction with the technical skill of creating funny or satirical material. Yes. Some days you just have a funny thing that you want to sell. Other days you feel you want to communicate a real point. And, you know, one of the things that we should constantly remind our listeners is that we're talking about people who are, in some cases, were writing as almost a hobby in the golden age of science fiction, but there were many others who it was their livelihood. So the more stories that you could write and get out there and sell, the more money you make, the better your livelihood is. So someone like Frederick Brown, who was a very prolific writer, he wrote silly stuff sometimes, and that's okay because the stuff sold. And he made a living off of it. You know, I don't have any issue at all with that. I think we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about the Golden Ages. Yeah, we don't want to deify it. No. No, I don't. Did Isaac Asimov ever write anything that was funny? I can't think of anything. Oh, uh, I think... A <laughs> Maybe couple, <he> tried. <laughs> a couple things come to mind. I was going to bring them up as an example earlier of how some writers and some comedians evolve and some find a level. And he is definitely someone who found a level. I mean, good on him. Yep. He probably got to the point where very it was... very successful. Yeah. He probably got to the point where it was dead easy to write a story because yeah. he had done that style and he never challenged himself. Right. I can think of a couple of stories that qualified as punchline stories, but I don't know if they were meant as funny. Probably some of his early stuff. Yeah. So any other thoughts on humor and science fiction? I think that covers it. Okay. Well, that's it for episode 30. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.